Hi everyone and welcome to the Real World Behavioural Science Podcast where we look at how the behavioural and social sciences are being used in the real world to help change the public's health for good. I'm here with my co-host Tiago Motella and we have a very weird show for you today. Tiago. Yes, Stu, we have indeed a very weird show uh, today. Firstly, a big thanks to Neil Howlett and Lou Atkinson from the BSBHN for helping me conduct this interview. I'm very, very pleased, um, Stu, that by popular demand, we finally have turned the tables on you. And uh, this episode is all about you. I mean, um, I, that does sound like a great show. <laughs> it is, it is. It's <laughs> Probably my favourite. So I've conducted this interview with Neil, who was a previous guest on the show. He's a reader in behaviour change and public health, and a trustee of the BSPHN, as well as Lou, who's a behaviour scientist and applied healthcare researcher and a community member of the BSPHN. And we are very excited, Stu, and we were very excited to grill, I mean, to interview you, Stu. And um, it was... A little Freudian slip there. It was just a slight one. Uh, We had (laughs) lots of fun. Um, actually. So, yeah. Stu, before before we start into the actual episode, which is what everyone is here for, um, I'm very excited because I'll be doing your introduction this time. Cringe. Yeah, go on. Cringe. Do you sure you don't want to do it? I might just go off mic for a minute. Yeah, go on. Just yeah. get it over with. The unofficial version that you've written starts with, Stu is an awesome leader, but I'm going to stick true. to I'm going to stick to my one if that's okay. So Stuart King has spent 18 years designing evidence-based interventions for children, young people, families and adults to change their behaviour and manage their weight. He has worked in local authorities as an intervention designer, the NHS as an obesity lead, Public Health England as a senior scientist in the obesity and healthy weight team, as well as as a national implementation manager for adults and older people, also within the the PHE, focusing primarily on supporting the development and launch of Everybody Active every day and supporting national level policy in England. He was a founder, CEO and head of Distraction and his award-winning organisation Busybodies, who provide behaviour change services to the public on behalf of public health teams across the country in England and who have now become part of a larger larger organisation, Maximus. That sounds good, a larger organisation. A larger organisation, see that. Mm, uh, yes, this is our beloved Stuart King, the man of the hour. Okay, that's a weird intro. <laughs> Thank you very much, Diago. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is the exciting bit. Stu is passionate about all the things behaviour change in a very, very interesting way and is very committed to bring, bridging the gap between evidence-based practice and real-world delivery of service. Stuart King... How are you feeling about this episode? I feel very cringy after hearing you do that introduction, <laughs> to be honest. Um, I think I don't want to even talk anymore. Uh, let's just move straight to the show. Let's you sure? Just go to the show. Do you want me to yeah, do it again? For sure. No, just, no. no just that's fine. Just, just let's go to the show. <laughs> Uh, hi everyone, uh, Lou and Neil. How are you today? Great, thanks. Really good, thanks, Thiago. You're good. All good. Uh, Stu, how's it going? Yeah, good, good. Bit of a kerfuffle getting online. Not yes. going to lie, but it's yeah. uh, we're here and we're we're ready. We navigated it well. How how does it feel mm. to be on the other side today? Weird. Weird. Good. Weird. Yeah. Bad. Weird. Uh, prob- don't know yet. See what. We'll see, see what. How how gentle you are, I suppose. Yeah, we'll we'll have to wait and see. Uh, good. So, Stu, do, do you want to start by telling everyone a bit about your journey to where you are now? Who is Stu and why you are where you are? Who is Stu? Um, yes. Uh, I sp- so I started um, I started out in in sports development after doing a um, sports science degree um in 2004 and and I just I loved PE in sport and I did I did my dissertation in obesity so I've been in obesity for a long time well since then nearly 20 years Mm. um and the first thing I did was I started a um a program called interactive which was like a school-based program uh with some money from Sport England that was left over from a previous um a previous 
pot of money if you like so there's one year they said it's obesity children 7 to 12 uh, in in areas of deprivation that are from um black asian and minority ethnic groups and that was it that was the brief and so i started a program from that called interactive loved doing that did amazingly like cool activities with loads of kids never worked with kids before either so i was really nervous going into that um and off the back of all of that stuff our, our aim was to sort of try and use an academic approach just coming out of uni i had that classic sort of thinking i knew a lot about academics at the time <laughs> I, did, I did not and still don't but um we we sort of tried to apply as much academic theory to that as we could um but being quite naive we would just call up really well-known professors and people like that and just go i'm doing this project i'd really like your help and that, and, and all of them did like stuart biddle and um kirsten rennie and and um who's the one we called uh, from what's the name uh it's not good that i can't remember it on this show um <laughs> But she put me in touch anyway. It was, it was someone in, it met, oh no, I can't remember who it was. Um, but but we just called them up and they were all really obliging. They all just said, yeah, yeah, we'll help. And I think just that naivety of just being able to pick the phone up to anyone um, helped with getting that stuff yeah. off the ground, getting a bit more profile and whatever to sort of keep the funding going more than anything. Um, so long story short, I, I, um, I did a master's whilst doing that and, and got some more funding from Sport England and some local places around Bedfordshire. Um, to do interactive active girls which was like a teenage uh, girl program to try and prevent people's uh, girls from dropping out of sport at that age uh, that they're sort of most likely to do that um, by offering autonomy we use self-determination theory as a guiding principle for that and gave them autonomy we gave them an opportunity to sort of get involved feel that relatedness to the to the project and yeah. and um, gave them responsibility they had to be interact with other groups and all that type of stuff so it was really good uh, really good program really enjoyable uh, and then wrote busybodies uh, which is our uh, now our organization but then it was just a family weight management program um whilst doing a master's at the university of, of bedfordshire in physical activity health and well-being and despite being very sort of interested in and obsessed with physiology my whole sort of life up to that point the the thing that really turned things around was sociology which i didn't expect because i wasn't a big fan of that but but i had a, a great sociology lecturer peter craig who ended up becoming involved in the the uh, in busybodies for 15 years so um he he and i designed a lot of the parenting courses we went into conflict resolution we went into all sorts of different sociological factors as well as uh, all of the psychological yeah. stuff that we were trying to sort of apply so whilst i was doing my masters i was recruiting lecturers never mind you know <laughs> volunteers and stuff into the into busybodies which was then just a you know the start of a program but our aim then as it is now was to sort of bridge that gap between academic rigor and real world delivery because we could see a lot of stuff going on that was really really passionate people would deliver but they had no idea of how to evidence that um or why what they were doing was working and we also saw lots of really contrived studies um that had interesting theories in um but didn't really describe the experience of the people we were working with in any uh, in 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 its entirety and so we sort of picked and chose what we wanted from each of the different theories that we were using that we could see working and sometimes we would see things working and wonder why and have to sort of retrospectively go back and we got quite a lot of flack for that because you're not supposed to sort of disaggregate theories up and, yeah. and take cherry pick and whatever but <laughs> we were just bothered by what worked we didn't care about that we just we just did what we we could see working and then evidence working um and then yeah through through that period um, we just applied that principle of, of trying to bridge that gap um, throughout. And then we brought more people into the organization, like Helen um, Mayhew, who's my co-director, uh, became part of the, the well, it wasn't an organization, it was just, she just came and started doing self-employed work like I was on on Busybodies and took, she sort of did it much better than I did. So um, she just sort of added all the operational rigor to the program and all the, all the safeguarding and all the stuff that you actually need to run an organization. In that time, I also then went and spent time as an obesity lead in um, the NHS, in NHS Bedfordshire and then as they as we all moved over to um the local authority I became part of the local authority doing the same thing um doing a bit of commissioning during that time um busybodies were sort of growing as we sort of did that in the background and I would do that evenings and weekends um then I went and went spent some time in public health England as a senior scientist in the obesity and um di diet obesity and health team 
uh, which is great on the pu public policy side, working at the sort of national level, and then working as a national implementation manager in P Public Health England um, with in the physical activity area. So we, we sort of produced the Everybody Active Every Day guidance uh, in 2014. Um, and at that point, Busybodies had sort of grown to 16 people. Um, so I then in 2015 came came out of that into back into Busybodies as the CEO and head of distraction at Busybodies. Um, and that's when we started doing adult programs and family programs and just sort of continued to apply that that evidence base um, throughout that period. I also became completely obsessed with behavioral science during that period of time because I spent time with Tim Chadbourne, who has been on the show in the past, um, who was the head of behavioral science at Public Health England. And so um, just spending a bit of time with him, becoming completely obsessed with behavioral science, that became the new obsession is like making sure we, we bring in behavioral economics, social, uh, sociology, behavioral sort of science more generally, and looking for opportunities to sort of incrementally improve all of our different programs yeah that's I, how i got into it i, I know that's a long-winded way of saying it but that's how i got into it i won't go on as to where we are now unless you want me to uh i think i was just i was just going to say that it's very interesting that um that even though even though your journey is quite you've, you've done uh various different things but something that um i can easily identify as the um it, i can easily identify as how you always try to think about the why and the so what of all those elements being academic or being different theories, different approaches, it's it always goes back to so what, why, how does that work? How can I turn that into something that actually works? For sure, and uh, that's hence the name real world behavioral science of the show. But the the um, that's that is my that's probably my sort of my obsession is is the so what is how does this actually why who cares why does this actually mean something and also diversities thinking about things from lots of different fields and lots of different areas different people's ideas and trying to bring them into a thing that we can deliver or a, a, a way that we can work with people or whatever so I think that's that's the thing we've always been focused on and we've continued to do that to, to this day yeah I, th I think I think it'd be it'd be interesting for me to hear Neil commenting on this uh, from a from a more academic perspective. Um, how how does that sit? Thanks, Delgo. That's really interesting. I think as academics, we really like to sort of control our variables, and so there's a tendency to sort of focus on a theory at a time. Um, and that way, we sort of can um, measure the different variables in that theory. We can it sort of allows us to know why an intervention might be working or why it might not and what the drivers of that might be. Um, but I think from Stu's perspective and, and people that are more in practice and kind of experimenting with different approaches, I think you've got to use your expertise and your experience by practice. And um, I don't think there's like the luxury of obviously controlling all these um, variables. And I do think you need to sort of be guided by um, a gut instinct. So I do think there's room for more controlled you know experimental research and practice and I think ultimately if there was really good evidence that this theory in this context worked for these people then someone like Stu would be aware of that you know or combining these two theories we're just not there yet in terms of the evidence base so I do think um, doing that more practice-based approach is fine. I always I, I think that I always thought though when we were going through that um, we would get back to that but we would just follow our nose on what we could see working in front of us at the time. And then we would always come back and say, what parts of the, we'd try and work out what parts worked and what, what parts didn't. So we did try and disaggregate them later, but I think it was more of a, there's as much entrepreneurialism in busybodies as there is academic rigor, as there is, you know, uh, real world delivery or all the other different elements there are in running an organization. And my, I think my drive is always what what can we see happening in front of us and how can we improve it um and then we've come back and, and and obviously we did that and neil's neil's one of the more real world academics anyway that's why in i don't know maybe four years ago something like that, five years ago we, we'd started behaviorally coding all of our, our um programs trying to use combi well lots of different theories actually but combi bcts etc um and 
then we wanted Neil to come and help validate that and sort of just poke holes in it and ask us questions from an awkward academic's perspective because Neil is an awkward academic. Oh, cheers, <laughs> no, he's not his great <laughs> academic. <laughs> he's not his great. But but we wanted that. We wanted we want people to come and poke holes in it so that we because we're not saying we've got it right. We're saying this is the best we can see at the moment. But just come and poke holes in it, and we'll work together on trying to trying to fix those holes. Yeah, so I, I completely agree. That doesn't that there isn't an either or approach. I mean, Stu's taken you know a mapping approach there. Um, you know, got to know the sort of things that they're trying to change in their program, the sort of elements of their intervention, but also using that sort of experiential practice based approach as well. So it's a nice combination of things. I completely agree. Uh, it, it's 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 interesting because uh, this uh, flows quite nicely to a conversation that Neil, Lou and I were having um, before this about the, the value proposition of, of your approach, Stu. Uh, Lou, do you want to elaborate a bit on that? Um, yeah, absolutely. I think, um, uh, you know, Stu, myself and Neil have been part of the Behavioural Science and Public Health Network for many years. And one of the conversations I think we have very regularly both internally and with all the partners that we work with in the network is about how do we communicate the value of behavioral science in um, you know all of these types of mm. programs that you're running. So I'm really interested to hear your viewpoint, Stu, and get the benefit of your experience in terms of as a business founder and an owner of a business that has clear behavioral science drivers how do you communicate your value proposition? And that's both in terms of how you differentiate busybody's use of behavioural science compared to perhaps mm. some of your close competitors, um, but also more broadly in terms of how do you communicate the value that applied behavioural science brings to public health? This is a, this is a great question. And a difficult one very early on in the in the interview, Louise. Thank you. Were <laughs> thanks, thanks for bringing that up. Yeah. Um, no one said. You yeah, I mean, an easy ride, Stu. I I did ask for one though for Tiago. I did say okay. that. Uh, anyway, I didn't okay, commit I to anything anyway. So, no, I wasn't yeah. expecting it. That's fine. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I think it is a great question, and and I sort of, I suppose one of the things that I that we in fact at Busybodies go back to is we're always thinking about um, how. What, what we're not thinking about what everyone else is doing for one thing largely we're, we're largely thinking about what we do best and how we can do it and, and what we can see in front of us we do look at what other people are doing for sure obviously that, that's sort of a great way to look for for diversity of ideas and all that type of stuff um but my one of the things that we see is that that and you and i'm sure you'll recognize this the buzzwordery that goes on in all industries but in behavioral in, in public health behavioral science has sort of become like a buzzword now and combi is a bit of a buzzword and co-production and all sorts of other things digital even even the word digital now is, is a, a a bit of a buzzword and so looking at what 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 we've what we did right we, we stopped looking at the market and saying what should we go for and how should we articulate what we what we think those commissioners want to hear yeah. and we said let's just tell people what we really believe in and what we really believe in is trying our best but not having the absolute answers to apply behavioral science to, to this and, and and showcasing the coding work that we've done and talking about you know why why we do things in that way and why that isn't perfect but it's our best guess at how we could iteratively iteratively improve our services because by coding them in the way that we do we we give ourselves a hypothesis by doing this thing we expect to see that thing and this is the theory that it uses it gives us a way to test our own internal uh, hypotheses and that comes back to the point that sort of neil made uh, we can test tiny tiny parts all the minutiae in our interventions because all of them have been thought through to a certain extent they're not perfect but they've all been thought through and so we articulate it like that. We articulate it as it is, you know, authentically. We, we are not perfect. We haven't cracked obesity. No one has. And anyone who does, I was speaking to some commissioners this week, and I said, look, anyone who comes in saying they can do what you've just asked for, you should be really skeptical of because they should come in with a level of humility and honesty about the fact that they don't know how to do that yet, but they, yeah. they're willing to try and be a good partner. So we've sort of, I think we've grown up and matured in the way that we go, we're we really honest. We're confident enough to be honest about the fact that we're really proud and, and we really believe in what we do, the way we do it. And we're looking for partners in that, not just commissioners to give us money and 
give us some boxes to tick and whatever. We just won't go down that road anymore. Um, so yeah, and that might be a privileged position or it might just be like, you know, we just wouldn't, I think Helen and I got to the point where we were saying, we either do something we really fundamentally believe in on a day-to-day basis, or this isn't worth it. You know, it's, it's, we're not in it for, there is no money in public health. We're not in it for the money. We're not in it for the glory. There's no glory either. Um, so, you know, <laughs> I think we're just really, we really know who we are as an organization. And we just tell people that we, we do it through um, things we write, the things that we say in videos that we might put out in talks that we might give, ideally as partners with, with our commissioners or whatever. So um, I'm not sure if that answers the question. We do do a lot of the value proposition planning. So we do actually think of it from a business perspective. And and you were part, Lou, in fact, you were both part actually, Neil, Neil and Lou, but part of when we did the value proposition planning for the BSPHN, for example. We, we do that with our internal services as well so that we understand where their value lies and that means that we can articulate that value better to to potential commissioners yeah i think that's a great approach to just focus on what you feel you do really well uh you know and and try to capture that and try to communicate that and i think that busybodies is a great example of how you how you do communicate uh, a behaviorally science driven approach um without having to get caught up in all of the terminology and all of the, um, you know, the language and the, the, the different sort of frameworks and things like this. And I think that's where, um, you know, some, as someone who, uh, you know, has spent a lot of time in academia, but also has worked in industry and, and currently works in industry, uh, you know, I, I think it's really easy to, to get caught up in all of that but actually you what you need is a really simple message um you know and and i would wholeheartedly agree with the honesty part in terms of those big challenges obesity probably being the number one that you know if, if it was easy everyone would do it right <laughs> we would have sure. fixed it by now sure. um so yeah. what, what's really interesting as a follow-on to that then is thinking about the world of evidence and evaluation so you're in a position now where you clearly have an extensive track record of what Busybodies has achieved, what you've done. You, you, as you say, things like the coding exercises, I think, are great to to, to demonstrate the sort of um, rigor, you know, that you've that you've taken. But ultimately, you're going to be judged on results. So I'm really yeah. interested in how you know we as a field demonstrate and evidence the value of behavioral science and we see consistently a big difference between how academics approach that and how industry approaches that particularly I'm interested in terms of evaluation how we evaluate interventions or you know public health programs however you want to phrase them so what can you tell us from your experience about the challenges of evaluating your services and how do you balance the need to be efficient and timely with that so you can get results Mm. both for the people Mm. you're already working with and so you can then hopefully reach more people um but with the need to be rigorous and objective and ultimately you know how do you use that to go out and sell your product so you can reach more people it's a nice short question (laughs) i'm always really succinct and to the point (laughs) oh yeah that's i mean luckily I, i I thought the question was finishing, so I didn't write any further notes. But I, I, I think I know. I think I know what my answer is to the question, and it's it comes back to I love Simon Sinek. I've talked about him on the show before, and and I talk about my whys quite a lot at work. So I think it's important to tell people why you do what you do, right? Um, and one of the one of my whys there's four, but one of my whys is to to try and help move the industry on by by sort of applying what we know and what we, and our approach and our values as as hard as hard as we can in the industry um and that means that what what we're looking for is we we're looking for those commissioners and i think of them as partners more than the commissioners but we're looking for those commissioners who are sort of if you've ever come across the adoption of innovation curve you've got the innovators and visionaries at the beginning then you've got the early adopters the early majority and then the late majority and then the laggards and it's sort of a bell curve essentially mm-hmm. 
we're only really looking at that first couple of, of segments in the market, because if you're really going to move things on, you, you need partners who are going to go on that journey with you. And so our approach is to find people who believe what we believe. And, and we do that, as I mentioned, by putting out what we believe to the world. And, and it, those people seem to find us and we build relationships with them so that we know that when we when we go into um, a contract with someone, that contract probably isn't going to be based on the old school style or that currently exists still, but the old school style of we want you to deliver this 12 week thing and the outcome should be 5% this or Z score that in weight terms. And, and we will hold you to that. You've got to get six months. This Some of that exists in our contracts for sure. But, but the most progressive contracts that we that we build now are built on outputs as much as they are outcomes because like you say, no one's cracked obesity and we do more than obesity. Now we do smoking cessation and alcohol and, and health checks and things like that. But, but let's focus on obesity. No one's cracked that. They haven't cracked them other things either, but let, no one's cracked obesity uh, and an honest conversation about the fact that no one's cracked that and that here's our approach. Do you believe the same thing or not? If you do, then what we can agree is we've got a set, a set of really interesting questions. And I think that's where behavioral science comes in. No one's going into a behavioral science experiment thinking they know, well, they might think they know the answer, but they're willing to test to see whether they can learn an, an answer or a better way of, of sort of learning the answer. Um, and then iterating from that. So that sort of marginal gains approach. So, so the, what we the way that we evidence what we're doing now in our most progressive contracts is we're focusing on do we agree that if we do these things and we do these outputs that we should see these type of of, of outcomes later and if the answer to that is yes then you, you're in a partnership where you can you're in a safe environment where you can bring back data you can bring back insight and collectively make decisions together so that you're your evidence is actually in are you increasing like community cohesiveness or are you increasing the level of engagement you're getting in these types of groups through the activity that we're doing rather than are you seeing five percent weight loss in um you know uh, south asian men in bristol for example um the fact is we haven't got to the point we're not mature enough in the, in this area that we could target the groups that need to be targeted effectively and produce the outcomes at the same time we still need to learn about how to do that better that being said in in our other contracts and in the past we have focused on those more traditional forms of of, of um, evidence and i think we have really interesting conversations if you take something like the standard evaluation framework for it that was developed by the national obesity observatory then owned by phe now i suppose ohid own it i don't know if they're doing anything with it but i was speaking to um to Louisa Ells recently about a different project, but she she was one of the, the authors of that, co-authors of that. And we always used to have really interesting conversations where she'd say, yeah, this is the guidance. But we know in reality, using all of the different items that are in here and all the different Rosenberg scale for this and heart of that, and blah, like they're not actually that good in the real world when you're working in some of the areas we are with some of the people that we're working with. And so don't use them. So we've always had, ended up having quite pragmatic conversations about that. And we have never put, evaluation ahead of the needs of the families or the the individuals that we're working with even though it's a really important part it shouldn't prevent people from wanting to come back because they spent 45 minutes filling out endless amounts of psychometric questionnaires and whatever else Definitely. so i think we've always tried to strike a balance and then ensure that our customers which is the commissioner the commissioners agree with our balance and if they don't they're probably not the right customer for us in the long term and they probably want somebody else who will will go away and try and do you know try and do those those um classic uh, validated and i uh, sort of validated um studies and and um measures to sort of demonstrate eff efficacy because i think we're re-understanding what efficacy means and where we are as a as a you know as a country in trying to actually make change happen it isn't happening necessarily at the level of 12-week interventions it's happening in in the development of community interventions a co-development co-production co and stuff that was a long answer to your long question there, it was I, I sort of got a taste <laughs> of my own medicine there didn't i Stu? and mm. and mm. if you'll allow me just to explore a little bit deeper because i think you've made some yeah. really interesting points um you know i think partnership working most definitely is is where we need to be in my experience um, and absolutely having people that will come on that journey for you. What what I'm reflecting on, because that is effectively a leap of faith then. You're not able to provide yeah. any tangible evidence to say, 
this has a good chance of success, you're providing them with a lot of theory, effectively. You know, like you said, we have a theory that if we do these things, these things will happen. Um, and I wonder if I'm trying to be positive here. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but I, you know, I think I think uh, it, it's a probably a fair assessment. I wonder if you feel that those conversations are easier to have now because those commissioners, those partners, do have a greater awareness and understanding of behavioural science. And, and you know, and, and is, can we take this as an indicator that behavioural science is becoming more integrated into? public health and, and various other sort of spheres that's a yeah, great that's question a great, that's a great follow-on um yeah. and and so, so that's why we that's why we are targeting that that early part of the adoption of innovation curve because they require less i suppose it's safety it's like political cover if you like having the having commissioning something that everybody commissions is safe they like the old saying was like nobody ever got fired for hiring ibm same thing here like nobody if you if you do what everyone else is doing you're pretty safe because you've got that safety in numbers thing we we are looking for quite rare people who are willing to go on a journey with us and turn that into evidence what i'm not saying is that we will we will always be talking about theory and um out puts they have to turn into outcomes um they can be different outcomes than we originally envisaged and they should be evident and, and they are insight and evidence-based but but that is the journey and we do need people to i think there's a the big need for courage in public health because you what what are, i think what a lot of the people that we end up working with they're so jaded by being sold stuff that doesn't work anyway that what have they got to lose, I think, is what their sort of their point is. And if they really believe in the same theoretical approach, but that theory, by the way, is, is often driven by lots and lots of different other examples of evidence of, of where we've done it in the past, being honest about where we've done it and it hasn't worked and what we've learned and iterated from that. So they can see bit more bit more safety than just here's a theory we've sort of come up with. I don't think that's what you were suggesting, but here's a theory we've we've plucked out of thin air and 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 come do you, do you want to roll the dice with us like there's 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 weight to the theory and there's weight and there's there's evidence within the approach that we're we're sort of selling to people if you like um that allows them to feel a sense of safety but it i mean genuine it does take a bit of a leap of faith because we are health wealth and education are places that people don't take risks and local authorities are not known for taking risks for obvious reasons so finding these people and then we feel a really acute sense of of responsibility to honor that and and do as much as we possibly can to provide evidence so that by the time they go back to their either political leaders in the organization or or you know director of public health whatever it is we're giving them really great insight evidence um loads and loads of different types of of information that's useful to them as commissioners to help improve their future commissioning intentions so yeah i think we're they are rare and i think that we need more courage in public health as we do in probably lots of other areas yeah i would i would endorse that as a message to definitely call out for more bravery in in public mm. health because you know we see time and again that doing the same things is achieving the same relatively poor results and with that i'm going to hand yeah. to neil yeah Thanks, Lou. I've just got one sort of um, other question on that before we move on. Um, I think with t the whole systems approach is quite sort of obviously a buzzword and it's a very popular thing that's come into all of our lives in terms mm. of uh, research and approaches to public health. But as Stu said, sometimes it's really hard to marry that up with measuring outcomes. Um, yeah. You know, you can spend millions of pounds on a uh, you know a whole systems approach to physical activity for instance yeah. but not be able to tell a commissioner or a politician that physical activity in that community or population's increased so i guess just how do we navigate that going forward and how do we try and provide some evidence of you know a approaching yeah. people as part of a system to be a positive thing totally brilliant brilliant point and, and and something that is again it requires absolute bravery and courage on on behalf of um people at the local level like politicians at the local level passionate commissioners um supportive managers supportive environments around them people who are willing to get cross you know cross correlate ideas and get involved in each other's work areas because people don't break down I mean, we talk about this in academia people don't break down into you know 
sociology, psychology, physics, like people are people and they have all of these things inbuilt in them, sociological principles, psychological, physiological. Um, so we shouldn't break them down as, as that. And, and if, if local, what, what I think happens, what I think is happening is that there's lots of people who that whole systems approach has become one of those buzzwords. And when I say buzzword, that makes it sound, I'm not being cynical there. I just think it means different things to different people yeah. and they have varying levels of infrastructural support around them to be able to enact that. And we're, we're involved in lots of whole systems conversations and supporting the development of some of those in our contracts. Um, and fundamentally it comes down to what gets measured gets done in a council. And so yes, leisure services and parks and, education and all sorts of other different departments within the organ you know within that in the local uh, local authority environment the ics environment should be involved but the question is do do all of their targets align because if they don't i can guarantee what'll happen it will be the same thing that's happened for the last decade you get all the good intentions coming into a room of working together but it's the first thing to go as soon as there's any stress in the system. And let's look at the system. It's pretty stressed at the moment. And so we have, we're not creating, and, and I think Tiago actually has created a really interesting corollary to ABCD, asset-based community development, which is asset-based systems development, because it's, it's all very well to say we should be doing asset-based community development, and we should absolutely, totally, 100% agree with those principles. But that we don't have a system that supports community development in a way that's required to solve some of the issues that we're talking about. So I think there's actually lots of lots of things that we need to do around a whole systems approach to be able to get get that to actually sort of really meaningfully work. And to come back to the point of like, you know, what do you what how do we measure it? you can't you can't know what the individual contribution of each of the different elements is you just have to trust that from a like like a marginal gains approach like dave brailsford and the marginal gains for the british cycling team for example you just have to trust that each thing is worth doing but in a world of resources where there is prioritization how do you do that i am i don't have the good answer either you, but but it will i know i know it will come from bravery i know it will come from courage at the local level uh, this is quite interesting for me to hear about this because i i Stu, we work together on a lot of these things. And I, I hearing you talk about outcome, outcomes versus outputs, not doing what everyone else is doing, looking forward to things that matter, uh, it kind of makes me think about the innovation side of a lot of the work that we do. So mm. it'd be, um, I would like to get your thoughts on how important is that innovation side into this conversation that we're having in, into moving things forward, into thinking beyond what's already established or written I mean, you you know more than most. I love innovation, and I always have. That's that's the thing I'm sort yes. of most excited by always. Um, but I have come to learn a lot about um, continuous improvement, which isn't necessarily classed as innovation. And I don't like. I, I'm not good at continuous improvement because it's slow and it's small, and and it, I really big ideas all the time. They're just constant. Um, but I have really shifted the way that I think about it because I always I used to think about creativity and things like that being the most important thing in public health to move things forward. And it's not. There needs to be like a transition point. There needs to be a conduit for that that actually works in terms of building iterative processes that can work at scale because I've never been good at the, the scale thing. Other people around me have, but I've never been good at it. And I, and, and I value the work they do now probably way more highly than I value our own work in innovation because actually without the ability to implement it, it's, it's just having fun and thinking about new things that actually are no good to anyone. Um, what was the other part of your question? I got carried away there. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I think you've answered it. It was, it was, I, I would, I really like to understand how you strike the balance in your opinion between that innovation, but just making sure that there's a track record that things are being shown to to work or at least to show there's learnings involved yeah so so i i that's my other thing i was thinking of the the, the i come back to the bravery point again because a lot of innovation another buzzword everyone says they want innovation they want localization and innovation innovation innovative approaches but then when you really break down what it takes to do innovation, you have to necessarily be okay with failure. You've got to change your relationship with failure. You've got to have a growth mindset when you when you go into to innovation work. And what I've realized, there's two two ways of describing that. 
one one is i won't name them but a recent commissioner conversation we had this oh we're really keen on innovation i'm like wicked what type of innovation are we talking like where where are we going to you know where are we going to innovate da, 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 da. well we want it over here we want to do this we want to do that but but we've we've had a bit of a terrible time recently you know it's it's got to work all oh, right okay <laughs> So you don't want innovation then. <laughs> you, 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 you want us to go and innovate somewhere else and then bring the results back and implement them here. No, 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 no. We really want innovation. No, no, you can't. You have if you want innovation, you have to change your relationship with failure. Failure is an absolutely essential part of it. And you have to have the political cover around you and the wheel, the same belief about innovation for you to be able to, to enact that. And the other example that I have of that is is more of an entrepreneurial one. So in the business over the years, over the last sort of 15 years or so, we've had immensely passionate people come through the organization. And we always try to get them to, to express those passions and, and sort of explore them together. And they'd get involved in all the project, all the new projects, even though we had lots of business as usual we needed to do. And that was great until a lot of that stuff failed. To me, absolutely no problem. As a sort of a, a more entrepreneurial person that's sort of driven by learning that from that failure mm. and then thinking about the next thing and how to improve the next thing in the next thing, no problem at, with that at all. That's all par for the course. But what people working at Busybodies weren't ready for was that the extent to which we would fail. And so they thought all the effort we'd put into this thing and it not working was a massive problem. And I was just like, no. We've learned this, that, and the other. We've got, now we can apply it in this way. Or that project is dead. We can't do that. That we've proven that that doesn't work. Let's. Uh, and it's, it felt really like we were killing off the idea for them. But actually, we were just learning more for the next time. So I think people's relationship with innovation is an interesting thing. And and we've got to to make sure that when you go into an innovative conversation or an innovative project with someone, you have a very you do the work of having that conversation about understanding how they feel about failure because they, if they don't like it, well, no one likes it, but if they don't get the same, you know, um, the idea of, of failing being an absolutely essential part, you are not going to have a good time in that project with that person because they fundamentally see failure differently to you. Does that answer that question, Tiago? Uh, he, he answers that question perfectly. Um, thank you, Stu. Wonderful. Even better. You heard it here first. Perfect answer. A long answer to a long question. Uh, I, I was just, I was just thinking because we, we, Stu and I always uh, talk about trying to keep uh, these episodes to forty-five minutes. Uh, so that, that's not, never that's not going to happen, uh, especially um, because we've got a great panel and a, a great guest today. Uh, but I'm just conscious of moving, moving things forward a bit. Uh, Neil, do you want to, do you want to jump in? Um, Thanks, Tiago. So next question is about. Uh, yeah, Next question on. is about what those can working in public health um, can do to ensure behavioural science is used effectively and how people like myself who are academics can help with that. Yeah, that's an easy one, Stu. <laughs> that's an easy one. Another, are they all this easy? Um, uh, these are, these are right. the easy ones, yes. <laughs> these are the easy ones, okay. We'll get to the real complex stuff soon. Um, I think they are helping because I think what we're seeing, and this sort of comes back to something you were you were asking a minute ago, Lou, as well, actually. Um, I think they are starting to get behavioral science in public health because there's a behavioral science and public health network for one thing, and they've done a lot. And Neil, you know, and, and Lou have been around it in a long, a, a long time. Um, and people like Jim, one of the founding members, and Angel, you know, they've done an amazing job of perpetuating the need for this integration of public health and behavioral science. Um, and you're seeing the effects of that because you've got the hubs everywhere. You've got the behavioral science hubs and people are more and more interested in that. Um, and you've got behavioral science units popping up within uh, local authorities, within um, ICSs and sort of other public bodies, as well as private uh, organizations. So I think it is, we are heading in, in the right direction in terms of people understanding that, that behavioral science is really important. I think there is still a lot of crossover between um, academics. If you take someone's role, like uh, when when Christina Curtis was sort of in this hybrid role between, I think it was Coventry, wasn't it, and, and Warwick? Yeah, she was. But you know, like th 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 there's these there's these really interesting examples of where that is starting to to work, and there is crossover. I still think there is a cost problem of behavioural science and public health because let's say that we're a really interested organization in behavioral science and we wanted to work with an academic institution. We know loads of people in academia. We, we have lots of relationships with academic institutions and yet it's still 
prohibitively expensive for a, what was a small organization when I was a big organization, but still it's prohibitively expensive for us to meaningfully work on a project together. And we work at different paces. Academics work on much longer paces. We're part of a, a number of NIHR bids, if you like, at the minute. You know, they're they're eighteen months out before <laughs> we're getting a decision. <laughs> I mean, we, I don't even know where we're going to be in eighteen months. Uh, the pace is just completely different, and so I think there is still work to do. On I think it's incumbent on academics and and ac- really academic institutions, um, but by people like you two, for example, or or Wendy Wills, for example, a great example of someone who's really willing to sort of push through the bureaucracy to do things in the way that the the industry needs it because the industry is where the stuff's happening as far as i'm concerned and there's so much opportunity if if we could just shift the way that some of the the bureaucracy sort of gets in the way of of that and and the cost implications of that like a knowledge transfer partnership exists but it's really difficult to get set up it's quite expensive and it's quite quite sort of um Rigorous is a good word to use for it, but I, I mean it in a bad sense. <laughs> I mean, it's overly <laughs> rigorous. Like it needs to be looser. You need to have a, a bit of opportunity to sort of flex and, and um, work with the way the industry works and the way that with the public health works. Well, that's not a great sign, Stu, because that's probably the cheapest way to get involved with an academic in terms of input onto a, a project like that. <laughs> no, so is there a better way to do something like a knowledge transfer partnership or a knowledge exchange, you know, like having an embedded researcher at an organisation or vice versa? But but we did a really interesting thing. So we, we had a, a what was then called a CLARC, but I think it's now called an ARC. Uh, I'm not even going to try and remember that acronym, but it might be Applied Research Collaboration. There you go. That one, I know. It's the way it was before was overly complex, but that Applied Research Collaboration was actually excellent, though. So we did that with the NIHR um, and one of our team, they were backfilled for a day a week for a year. And that's that's one of the best ways I've seen of doing it. And and we had a really, because we did it through through Wendy, actually, at, at, at Hearts, where I mentioned her. Um, it was really realistic. It was really real world. But but. Um, Charon, who did that course, she went and got such a great grounding in, um, in the in the academic support of that that she and she, but she was also really passionate about her work at Busybody, so she brought all of that back in in a really really rigorous way, and it set her up to go off and do a sort of a pre PhD course at Imperial, and now she's on a PhD. So you know, it it worked for her personally, it worked for us professionally, it was great for the university to be part of. So there are types, of, there are those types of things that I think can work. I just think we need to deregulates the wrong word but sort of make them slightly easier to access so you know a, a normal knowledge exchange partnership sort of a four-year pretty structured program of work so is there a better way that's shorter or you know less resource more agile where that research can still um you know embed themselves in your organization well it can i mean it could, i think it could work i just think it needs to be easier to, to do and and i think there's lots of advantages of an academic spending time in industry um and this is something that rachel i think rachel carey who came on the show um talked about recently just spending a bit of time understanding like people who go from university to a master's to a phd nothing at all wrong with that right nothing wrong with it but I think when people have had a couple of years in industry or in in uh, you know an organisation and they've done done a job of work, it just helps them contextualise what they're doing in their in their study in a in a much more meaningful way. I don't think anyone would disagree with that, Stu. Um, no, again, no, I think <laughs> I think in the in the interest of time, we'll we'll move forward. Um, and I wanted to ask you a slightly more personal question. So you may decide this is a short, shorter answer because you don't want to go into any detail. But I'm really interested because you talk a lot about being a behavioural science enthusiast rather than a yeah. behavioural scientist. So without getting too deep, does this indicate that there's an element or you've experienced an element of imposter syndrome over the years? Yes. <laughs> and if so, because you won't be alone, how have you managed that? Yeah. Um, the, the easy answer to that is yes. Even now, as you're interviewing me, this is a really... It, it, uh, the imposter syndrome is quite high today because... I, and I say enthusiast because I... I do, I am concerned that people who've done PhDs in, in behavioral science or have worked in academia or whatever, 
there can be a reasonable amount of snobbery. And I go right back to our first, a second show with Chris Armitage, where he sort of talked about the the um, snobbery from some of the more red brick universities about the applied nature of his degree that he did, I think, at Manchester or Leeds. Um, and I and I because I think of us as being purely about application and not snobby at all about where good ideas come. From. I don't care where good ideas come from. I, I do. I am concerned that people would look and go this guy doesn't know he's not he's not done any period of study he's not producing papers um but where i where i then where how i deal with that is i don't i don't really care if they're snobby about that because i'm so passionate about what we do and yeah. i think that our results speak for themselves i and i and i think that that diversity piece that i talked about earlier i think i've had a really diverse career and put myself in lots of odd situations really productively and so in most rooms or in most situations whilst i'm not an expert in anything i could usually add something to a conversation about behavior well behavioral science certainly but obesity generally public health about the system about national politics from a, from a, my work in, in phe about local local level politics and stuff and i think i understand a lot about the system itself and i'm also a massive sociology geek and again i'm not a sociologist but i read voraciously about sociology when i became when it was like um an aha moment but on crack when i had this when i had the sociology thing hit me and i and, and originally i wrote busybodies as a, as a residential course and we were going to deliver it three weeks after i had this aha moment and i just cancelled the whole thing and said this won't work called up my lecturer peter and said you you fucking tosser you i've been i haven't slept for two days i've been thinking about pierre bordier <laughs> and he was like brilliant you know and he, he see this is an interesting inflection moment he could have said who do you think you're talking to blah 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 but he he was in it for the for the for the you know kids he was in it for the for the passion of people learning and so he just went great let's talk about it so we spent days and days writing and talking and all that and i just think those those types of experiences have helped me be okay with not being an expert in anything but being really passionately interested in lots of things and that that diversity has value that i don't think i knew at the time and i don't think lots of people know necessarily but it just i think it adds a lot more value than we know and the book rebel ideas is a great example of that by, by matthew said i think um you know as a ref again a reflection i think it's really um important to highlight the fact you know that expertise by experience is just as valid as expertise via any other route um you know and uh, as someone who was doing a lot of applied research a long time before I got a PhD <laughs> you know I, I felt yeah. very strongly uh that that was the case also but I think really you're a living example Stu of of that expertise by experience your very approach to your business is all about let's try it and let's see what works um and ultimately that is science so you know i think maybe sure. it's time to start thinking about changing your title <laughs> okay I, think uh, I agree with that is, is that can i see some tears in Stu's eyes probably uh no i was just going to say because no. uh, Stu, i'm not crying you're crying <laughs> You, I think I think we, we well. It's important to highlight that Stu is probably the best I've ever met in my life who read more books about behavior science than I've I've can even put into words. Every every there's always a book in the back pocket to quote mm -hmm. an approach that he's read in a book a long time ago. Without wanting to disclose your age, um, it, there's always a little contribution, being theoretical or practical, that always is thrown um, to the table, and I think that's that's very valuable. Well, I, I think I've, I've said this because one of the, my passions is developing people, sort of mentor quite a lot of people and whatever else. I do that in a quite a harsh way most of the time. But it, it's the thing about books is, and I listen to them now, I can't have time to read them anymore, but like it's, it's someone's best ideas condensed into like eight or 10 hours on an audiobook. What if you're not learning from people's best ideas? What are you doing with yourself? Where are you getting your information from? I know there are also papers that you can read and all those types of things as well. But I love books for that reason. They make me think. They make me. They give me ideas. And and I think cross pollination of ideas is something that's really really valuable and probably slightly underrated in terms of where effectiveness can come from. 
Well, thanks, Stu. That's really interesting. We're going to move on to sort of our last main question now. So given your many years of experience in public health, working with, reading about and delivering behaviourally informed interventions, what advice would you give to someone who is, quote, not a behavioural scientist, but is rather a behavioural science enthusiast and wants to make a change in the field? I see you turn that question around a little bit there on me. Uh, <laughs> yeah, a little bit. We asked that of all the guests as well. Um, ooh, I mean, for me, just just having a go really is is that you could because you can do it in such a small way. So that's what I love about behavior science. It doesn't have to be a big grandiose theory and a big grandiose project. You can do it in your own life. Oh, and I wrote. Uh, the book that I still haven't finished. I was talking to Richard Wiseman on the show about that. I still haven't finished that. Um, but I think it's one of the things, and, and, and one of the things that we've realized, Tiago and I, and speaking through it recently, is because I got diagnosed with ADHD last year, it's really helped me understand a lot of my own things, things that I thought were my own personal failings are actually really nicely clustered in ADHD a lot of the time. And what, and what, what I realized is that uh, all the different behavioral experiments that I've done over the years, and I've iterated them to try and hone not being useless at work were were sort of examples of where you can use behavioral science in the day-to-day and so much so that i contacted the this really great podcast um uh, adhd adults um uk make a podcast and, and i contacted them and just said look i think the language in behavioral science really helped me understand how to sort of make small experiments work for me as you know and try to get around some of those things that are really frustrating for people uh, with in a similar position so i just think that um giving it just trying it if you don't want to try it at work try it in your personal life first and and that's really easy to do because you can look at any any of the behavioral science theories and go I could improve something by 1% if I did this. And you could use choice architecture. A choice architecture, for anyone listening, is a, is a really easy place to start. Just put something in your way uh, that you want to do more of or remove something from your way that you want to do less of. This is just a basic, easy example. And just by adding friction or, reduce, or removing friction using choice architecture, you can see that, that that's behavioral science. It is. Uh, you, it just isn't, um, it, it's just not, you wouldn't call it that necessarily. You can call it that, but but I think it's just having a go and developing your confidence and reading books. You know, if you if you read some books, it should give you ideas about wh- why. It, I think the thing that I've always done is every time I'm reading a book, I'm always thinking about how this applies for me, and very often, how does this apply for the busybody staff? Because I'm always thinking, how can we make things better? How can we make things better for the staff? Because the better the staff experience, the, the better they're going to be at their jobs with with the public. Um, so I think it's just reading books and contextualizing as you go, and other things, you know, podcasts, papers, whatever, whatever you are able to do. Because if you're not a behavioral scientist, if you're not a scientist, or if you're not used to reading scientific journals and, and things like that they're really inaccessible and hard to get hold of but if you are used to it great use them give yourself ideas think about how you could make little tests up for yourself and if you're if you read books if you listen to podcasts just try stuff and then if it works if it just so happens that you might come up with an idea that you could try at work start small and, and start doing it i think that's a great uh, a key takeaway message go read books and try stuff um, that I think that <laughs> sums it up quite nicely, doesn't it? It's a good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Can I just say I've got one final question about where people can get hold of you? But before I just, I think it's important to say that um, just to commend your bravery to um, be on that side um, of the show, and you, you did tell me that you didn't want to see or know um, the questions we were going to be asked, which I, I found uh, quite brave. So we, just to pinpoint that you, you didn't know what you were going to be asked. And I like that you just embraced it um, as a challenge. I prefer it. Be on, on on the spot is what I usually really think. So uh, I much prefer being on the spot than trying to think through some answers and then trying to remember what I'd thought and stuff. It doesn't work for me. So, yes. Well, thank you. Uh, and thanks to you all, actually, for coming and doing the show. It's a, a weird experience, but I... I don't know. Is it enjoyable? Yeah, I think so. I, I, I think I've enjoyed it. That's good. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you did. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, do you want to just tell us where can people get hold of you, um, and if they want to reach out to you with questions or, or, or anything, what's the best way to do that? For sure. 
I mean, really, LinkedIn is where I, I, I'm most active. I, I don't actually love social media, to be honest, but I do LinkedIn um, and I do have Twitter as well. And I do, I'm on there occasionally. That's at Stu underscore King underscore HH. Um, so you can get hold of me on there. I, I love hearing from listeners anyway. I think it's brilliant when they get in touch, when they've got questions, especially when they've got complaints or stuff like that. I, I really enjoy reading through those. Um, not that we get them any. It's quite a sort of mild show. But yeah, you can get hold of me on any of those. Perfect. Uh, no, uh, it's funny that you say you don't like social media, given yeah a lot of some recent innovation uh, work streams about creating videos and, and putting um, <laughs> some content out there videos yeah yeah but i hate making those videos <laughs> like i i really cringe i was walking through gloucester keys the other day trying to make a recruitment video i had to do it 20 times loads of kids on the school lunch break shouting oh, i was like shut, I'm making a, shut up I'm making a video <laughs> yeah i hate it but it is i think it is an interesting thing because um video is one of those things that just obviously captivates people not captivate but like it captures attention way better than most other mediums so i think we should be doing a lot more of it in public health so i'm going to test that out testing stuff that's that's the take-home message uh lou and neil is there anything yeah. else you'd like to add or, or to before we finish the session no 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 it's been a it's been fun to put you on the spot for a while yeah just to echo what you said tiago which is you know well done for um you know, giving this, giving this a go, and this being one of your uh, your many, many examples of being brave and uh, innovative to be put the host on the other side of the table. So uh, yeah, it's been a pleasure to chat to you about it. Perfect. It's a shame that people can't see the tears in Stu's eyes, but um, yeah. <laughs> see what he's doing here. I always, I always like play games with Tiago on the show, and and I have the editorial sort of rights. So I I can edit it however I want. So he's just putting lots of content in there to yeah, to wind just, me up. Just in the jungle, the oh, it's recording, so I need to be very careful. <laughs> Something like, "Hi, this is Stuart King. I'm here with Big Boss Man, and we are <laughs> recording. Remember, it's recording." <laughs> guys thanks so much i really enjoyed it actually um and, and thank you for agreeing to to come and do the interview i hope uh, people find it remotely interesting perfect thanks everyone. Cheers, everyone well wasn't that fun Stu? <laughs> yeah fun <laughs> it was it actually do you know what it was fun i did enjoy it actually yeah, I do. I do love talking about. I, I mean, I, I do love talking about behavioural science. <laughs> <laughs> I thoroughly enjoyed it too, and I know Neil and Lou um, also really enjoyed it. And by the way, I just want to say thank you to Neil and Lou again for yeah. their support and for being so rigorous and and um, gentle with their questions. I, I I wouldn't say they were gentle. They were definitely rigorous. <laughs> they weren't too harsh, but they weren't they weren't gentle. There was a couple of sort of squeamish moments for me in there but i think the other thing is to thank neil because he actually recorded that show twice because we actually corrupted his file um when we first recorded it, which is why it took a bit longer to get out um yeah do you, i mean i've got no idea what people are going to make of that show do you have any questions Tiago? do you have any further no, things you want to say this is the interesting part actually because we normally have always have questions and points to make uh, after the shows but i i mm. i do speak to you quite a lot um every day which uh, might be a blessing or a curse we don't know yet Obviously um, a blessing. <laughs> Jealousy so i i don't have any particular questions for you Stu, but i think it was quite interesting to see because because uh, we, we've been talking a lot about squiggly careers and you've had a mm. in, very, very interesting um, professional path and professional career. And I think um, this show, I can't, I don't know yet how long it's going to be, but I think we could have spent way many more hours talking about um, the very interesting things that you've done um, in your career. And I think for me, the, the one thing is it always comes across your passion, your passion for what you do, for translating academic rigor into supporting local communities, working with public health, navigating the system. I think for me, that's, that's a big, big highlight of this show. 
Well, thank you very much. Uh, I mean, I, I, like I say, I do think it's weird, um, but I, I very much enjoyed it. And, I, and I, passion is one of the things that I at, do feel a lot, and I've never had a problem conveying it. So uh, I think that's probably accurate. Now, now let's just stop talking about these for now um, and move on. So who have we got coming up? We've got real proper guests, not like me coming proper on the show guests. and talking. Proper talking guests, yes. Like proper are. guests. What, who have we got coming yeah. up? Yeah, so the standard's going to go up. Uh, significantly yeah, in the next couple of shows. Uh, so we did announce Rory Sutherland coming next. However, we're going to be recording that in November now. So it's going to be like a Christmas special sort of thing. He's teasing us. It's, it's he's just, teasing he's, us. His diary's too too <laughs> heavy. and We couldn't get it recorded. He's teasing us. He's teasing but I do think us. we've got... Who have we got? So we've got next month, then we're going to have Lee Caldwell from Irrational Agency. Um, and he's a great guy. He's got a lot of interest in the history in behavior change behavioral science particularly around sort of more economics products and pricing so i think these shows are really interesting to me because they're different industries all together there's a lot of corollaries that we can take a lot of learning that we can take so um yeah interesting we'll have lee next month um also excitingly today i was spending time with the bsphn team uh, and we were talking about our conference that we're going to be running next year early next year i think it's around february amazing speaker i'm not even going to tell you who it is tiago there is an because they haven't locked him in yet actually to be honest but there's an amazing speaker that you will want to see i guarantee it just right. a little teaser hopefully next month we'll be able to give you okay. an idea of when it's when the tickets are going on sale but that is one to keep an eye out for um uh, for sure uh, in the meantime i hope you enjoyed the show i don't know why you would but i hope you enjoyed <laughs> the show um we i i think we had a lot of fun making it anyway but uh, you know hopefully it's got some use to some people we'll see you in the next show take care of yourselves and take care of each other all right take care bye bye in the jungle oh it's recording so i need to be very careful <laughs> <laughs> do you know why you're laughing it's nervous laughter you know that this could go anywhere it's not it's it's yeah no, I'm, I'm literally crying anyway so oh dear <laughs> <laughs>